Right, what's up guys welcome to this episode of the g team podcast the g team is a group of young people dedicated to providing people with the knowledge to make the most of their life sharing practical ways to maximize productivity and offering support to those who need it to create a more fulfilled life my name is peter and i'm olu and we're your hosts for this podcast thanks for tuning in and i hope you enjoy listening Welcome to another episode of the G Team Podcast. I'm joined by some industry experts here. We've got Johnny and Prina here. So would you both like to just quickly introduce yourself? Johnny, you go first. Yep, my name is uh, Johnny Gowdy. I'm a director at, uh, at Regen, and we are, I suppose, a small independent not-for-profit organization that supports the transition to a net zero future, um, specializing mainly in energy and renewable energy, sustainable energy. Um, and hi, I'm Prina Samaria, and I'm a local energy coordinator at Regen. Um, and I mainly work in the community energy sector, but also within renewables as a whole. Okay, so can get a little bit of a flavour about what this episode is about from the guests and their description. So we're going to be talking a little bit about climate change today. Um, and in case any of you have not been too aware of what's going on, obviously the past couple of weeks we've had COP26, which is a major event where a lot of the world's leaders have gone together to try and tackle this climate climate crisis. I was just wondering, uh, Johnny, would you be able to give a, a brief summary, a little bit of context uh, for what's actually going on? What is there a crisis going on? Like, what's actually happening? What's caused it? Yes, um, well, absolutely, there is a crisis. They call it the climate emergency, uh, yeah, basically. But uh, to put it into context, we've got about 10, maybe 15 years to really make a difference in terms of our carbon emissions. And if we don't do that, the scientists tell us that we're looking at a minimum of 1.5 degrees global warming. But in reality, we're probably looking at more than two degrees global warming. And, and just to give you some context, I mean, two degrees global warming means significant sea level rises. It means much more extreme weather events. It will mean droughts in some parts of the world and increased desertification. It will mean deforestation. It will probably mean the end of corals, um, coral reefs um, across the world. It could displace millions of people. And, and it could actually kill millions of people in terms of hunger and famine and the wars that are likely to come from the, uh, um, the, the you know the climate change impacts. So it's pretty scary when you look at it at a, on a global basis. And I suppose one of the big challenges then is what can we do over the next ten years that will really make a difference? And uh, you mentioned COP. We'll come back to that. But I suppose that was the big topic at, at COP. What do we need to do, and how quickly do we need to do it? Yeah, exactly. And I guess you could say there's been a bit more awareness now, a bit more eagerness to get things done. You, you know, towards the end of COP, for example, you're seeing the US and China actually dealing together to try and share the technology and at least speed up this process of tackling climate change. So I was wondering, Prina, just in terms of like current and future effects of climate change, on a like maybe more personal level, uh, at least I can say that I've, I've noticed in the, over the past few years a rise in natural disaster, disasters. We're seeing more forest fires, for example, or floods. Um, what are like the extremes? So, for example, getting between 
1.5 degrees, as we mentioned, above um, pre-industrial levels and two degrees. What What's the real difference there? And will the planet still be safe? Will, we, will it still be habitable if we go much further than that? Like, what's the real limit? Um, I don't think any of us, including the scientists, actually know the limit. Um, but what, what I will say is that we can already see the effects right now, as you said. So I think all of us have like seen the forest fires in Australia, in um, west coast of the US. Um, we've seen flooding in Uganda, Germany, um, UK, all around the world. Um, and so we could, we're at what, about 1.2 degrees warming right now, and we're already seeing the heightened effects of the climate crisis, and it will only get worse as we increase in temperature. Um, and I think Johnny's outlined some of the ways in which um, that's going to happen. Um, and so um, I guess going back to, yeah, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a real possibility if we don't, that we could be seeing societal collapse um, if we don't change our ways. Um, but on the flip side of that, I just want to turn it a little bit positive. Um, on the flip side of that, we could be seeing a new, what, greener world of that's more just. And we often talk about this in terms of climate justice and saying that um, what often what we need to understand um, with climate change is that it's going to affect the most vulnerable people the most um, and they're going to take the brunt of the impact. Um, and so I think when, whenever we talk about these issues, it's always important to kind of keep that in our minds and it's going to exacerbate a lot of our current issues. So um, we talked about famine, for example, and sub-Saharan Africa is going to be hit by quite a lot of the droughts. Um, and it's already happened. We can see in Kenya, for example, there was uh, droughts in the past uh, few years. Um, and so um, it's kind of just understanding all of that. So I think I answered your question. Yeah, yeah, like it's just to a little bit more context on the issue this is, and like the seriousness of it. Um, this is a massive. You mentioned. Oh, sorry, go ahead, John. I was going to say, this is a massive test for humanity, isn't it? This is a real sort of moment when we really have to look at all those international systems that we have in place. We talk about United Nations and the collaboration that we have. And, and this is probably even, I, I, I mean, I hesitant to say, but maybe even bigger than World War II in terms of the global scale of what we have to do. And either we as humanity will respond to this and the outcome, as Prina says, of that response could actually be good. We might actually learn a lot about the environment. We might actually be able to build back the environment in a better way, in a more equitable way. Or we're going to carry on with the same sort of self-interested, selfish processes and 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 then the outlook is pretty dire actually, and 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 it's really hard to know how bad it will be because there are a number of tipping points that we might reach where we really lose control of the process, and and at that point, nature and the environment will will, will take its revenge on us, and, uh, and and we'll be subject to that. I just want to actually um, explain what a tipping point is for people who don't um, necessarily understand. An example that I um, come back to quite a lot is, for example. Uh, peak in Siberia and um, what it basically means is that as it warms will release permafrost that used to be frozen and is no longer frozen and that will release methane into the air and that basically means that it will get warmer which will melt more of the permafrost which means it'll get warmer and warmer and warmer and so these tipping points are um, where we 
basically release a feedback loop, which we can't come back from. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's, I'm guessing there's multiple like natural tipping points that exist in the world. Like that's just one of them that you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Greenhouse De gas. It's going to contribute to the warming, like you said. Yeah, deforestation, loss of ice cover, ocean warming, all of these things have the potential to create that sort of negative feedback loop where, um, you know, we as humanity will struggle then to manage that because the, you know, the processes start to operate at a scale at which it becomes very difficult for us to, to come back from. Yeah, and obviously, Johnny, before you, you, you mentioned this being like a challenge for all of humanity, like I just was, I wanted to touch on what what needs to be done at a large scale to sort of tackle this issue and globally you know you've mentioned collaboration um obviously every country has their own interest at heart they want to develop themselves they want to get richer they want to you know use use the power that they need to to use whether that's emitting carbon or not you, you know you, you see in, in um, cop 26 with china and india Eventually, the deal had to get watered down um, regarding uh, phasing out coal uh, rather than, um, well, it turned down to be um, phasing down rather than phasing out. And these are all small things, but a lot of people will be asking why and what, how come, you know, China and India um, are getting away with this? Like, how come they're, they're phasing out, they're not going to phase out of um, coal by the limit that other countries have agreed to? Would you be able to just touch on that? Because I think there are some legitimate answers. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a sort of a negotiation going on between the developed countries, so the sort of industrialized West and America in particular, um, the developing countries that are very vulnerable to climate change. So let's think about Africa and parts of the Pacific and South America. And then those countries that are kind of in the process of development, India, China, uh, Brazil and, and 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 a number of others, and, and they've all got slightly different interests, I suppose. They've all, they've all got a common interest in protecting the environment, and we need to deal with this global issue. But they're coming at it from a slightly different perspective, I suppose. From China and India's point of view, they would look at the West and say, "Well, you know, you've had 200 years of exploiting fossil fuels, that has enabled you to grow your economy." I know, by the way, you also grew your empire during that time as well and exploited our resources, and we haven't forgotten about that. Um, and now you're asking us to forgo the opportunity of using our resources to to grow our economy. Um, and to some extent, it, it's a political thing. I think to some extent there are national interests involved. And to some extent, it's an economic thing. There's There's clearly a financial negotiation going on where those developing countries are saying to the West, you know, if you if we make the sacrifice, if, if we slow down our development and they see it as a slowdown of development, which is maybe not correct, but that's how they see it. We want you to compensate us for it. And um, and, and that's played out at COP. I, I think it's changing, though. Uh, I, I think the tone has improved. I mean, it's hard to to believe that. But given where we were five or 10 years ago, I think we've made good progress. And we had a conversation in Regen that COP looks a success if you look back, but it looks like a, not a success when you look forward at what needs to be done. And I think that's kind of one of the one of the challenges there. But I, I, I think the fact we're having those negotiations, I think the fact that coal, fossil fuels is on the agenda has has changed things. 
And the other thing that's changing things is a realization that going green and doing the right thing is not an economic cost. It's actually an economic opportunity. And particularly for developing countries, if they can skip the fossil fuel stage and go straight to renewables and new technologies, that's a massive advantage. Because to be honest with you, you know, nobody really likes fossil fuels. Coal is not a good thing. Even in a developing country, it creates pollution, it affects people's health. It's not a positive. So if we can skip through that, then that's actually a bigger opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you kind of classified countries into three sort of categories there. You know, the ones that have already made quite a big start in terms of re renewables. Like you're looking at you know, the West, for example, China, India, like you said, there's a lot of investment in new renewable and renewable technology. And yeah, the third category, we're looking at sort of less economically developed countries who are heavily reliant on fossil fuels right now. They might not necessarily have the, the infrastructure um, or the, the investment necessary to sort of take on these new cleaner uh, ways of producing energy and power. So how would you say we can tackle that? Like, as humanity, how are we going to enable these countries that don't necessarily have the resources to um, sort of tackle climate change head on? Well, I mean, when we say they don't have the resources, it's it's kind of interesting. Some of those developing countries, I'm thinking about sub-Saharan Africa now, actually have fantastic resources in terms of solar energy, in terms of, um, you know, um, forests, for example. And, uh, um, you know, parts of South America have got, you know, very good hydro energy and, and potentially um, offshore and onshore wind. So they do have the natural resources. A lot of those countries also have an imperative because they're on the front line of climate change. So they're they're the countries that will be most affected by climate change. So there's kind of a natural imperative for them to to move forward and to be on side. I think what they're missing is 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 money, is capital, is finance. I mean, these projects are huge capital investments, and it's always been an issue for developing nations to access. Um, capital, whether it's for renewable energy or any other sort of infrastructure, which is which is needed, and and to some extent, I suppose the technical and technological um, access to new technologies, and that can be overcome, I think, very quickly. So I think it's about mobilising what the West has to offer, which is the finance and the technologies, and putting that together with what the developing nations have to offer in terms of natural resources. And their, um, their 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 willingness to change and their ability to change very quickly, which is actually I I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see African countries now really coming to the fore in this area. You know where they where they're able to make that step forward. I I don't understand why South Africa is still so dependent on coal. I really don't. Given that they are surrounded by ocean, surrounded by um, you know wind and have excellent solar. And and it just it seems to me that that could change very very quickly. Okay, and would you say that's just going to come with you know increased awareness, um, increased um, incentive as well? It, it, it's it's incentive. I mean, it's it's it, awareness is great, and and everybody wants to do the right thing, but you really need um, finance in order to make that happen, and and you need a change of attitude in the the political classes in those countries and also in their nascent industries. 
that to make that change. And it's not so surprising because, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we were in exactly the same place in the UK. I mean, you know, 15 years ago, when I started out working in renewables, it was seen as a fringe industry. It was seen as some, you know, it was seen as a, a minor industry. And now, you know, 10, 15 years later, we're right on the mainstream. So it's not surprising that countries are are, are having to change and adapt to this. Okay. And obviously, we've already touched on COP like a, a decent amount, but Frina, would you be able to just like touch on maybe the key sort of takeaways from from COP this like and the event this year? What were the main like sort of goals go, going into it, and then you, know, you were there, Prina. Sort of like what were the what the key findings? What the key like agreements that we managed to managed to secure? Yeah. Um, I might need Johnny to back me up in a minute here, but the, the ones that I, um, I did go up for COP actually, I went up to Glasgow um, and there was a really incredible atmosphere actually. I was not invited to the Blue Zone unfortunately, but I went to a lot of fringe events um, and it was really interesting to see um, the level of kind of commitment from a lot of people um, to this cause. Um, and anyway, so back to your question. Um, like Johnny mentioned earlier, there was, and I think you mentioned as well, the coal, that's quite a big thing, um, the phase down of coal. Um, there was the deforestation um, pledge. Um, so I believe that accounts for 91% of forests um, to stop deforestation by 2030. Um, there was also the methane pledge, which um, was, I'm not sure how many countries were involved in that, um, um, but yeah, so it was to methane is another greenhouse gas like carbon dioxide um, and actually a lot more potent than uh, carbon dioxide. Um, so reducing that is also going to be important um, in tackling climate change. Um, and lastly, it was the first time that loss and damages um, had been agreed on at a COP. So it wasn't um, it wasn't what the developing as much as the developing countries wanted, and it's also been delayed. I believe, um, but that was kind of the main positives of COP. And then there's also every COP, the countries come in with nationally declared contributions to how they're going to reduce, um, how much they're going to reduce their emissions by. Um, and so this year, coming into Glasgow, um, we were on track, if everyone kept their commitment from Paris, which was five years ago, we were on track for a 2.7 degrees warming. Um, and so we've talked a little bit about these numbers um, and the aim uh, that we all agreed on five years ago is 1.5. Um, and after COP, it's at 2.4 if all of the countries um, commit and deliver on their national NDCs. Um, so obviously that's not good enough um, if we want to create um, a world that we want, that we want and it kind of means millions of people are going to suffer if we carry on but what was also agreed with COP was that next year at COP27 in Egypt they'll come back um, with strengthened NDCs so that's the kind of next step is that all the countries agreed to come back again next year with strengthened NDCs so that we can try to keep 1.5 um, alive. So I hope that's a summary, Johnny. Did I miss anything from that? I, I think I think you got it all. The, the the only one I might throw in, which was kind of a side thing to, to the official COP, was the various financial institutions 
and I think there was um, there was about 200 world financial institutions that signed up to channeling investment into green and low carbon solutions. And together they control, I think it's $130 trillion. So um, it's a huge amount of money. I mean, it's, it's one of those big numbers that you then wonder, well, how do you actually measure that and who's actually going to count that? But it's kind of an impressive sounding number. And I, I guess there's quite a lot of that in COP where there's a lot of commitments, but most of it is voluntary and most of it's based on, you know, individual countries or individual you know organizations doing their bit. And there isn't there isn't a global police force to make sure that everybody does it. And we're kind of and, and that's both a strength and a weakness, I would say. It's, it's obviously a concern about people not f fulfilling their commitments. But on the other hand, it's probably the easiest way to make things happen quickly is to is to let people kind of have a degree of freedom to go about it in their in their own way. And I mean, going back to that theme about was COP a success or not? I mean, as Prina's just said, you know, in reality, it wasn't enough. We didn't we didn't get the commitments that we need to achieve two degrees, let alone 1.5 degrees. So, you know, by a hard measure, you would say, you know, it didn't deliver. Uh, on the other hand, if I was being positive, it has created a momentum and it, what, it's what happens next that's important. So we can either, the, the expression they use is to ratchet, we can either ratchet up from the point that we've got to and actually drive forward and make that, you know, make further um, ambitions and, and, and deliver more, or we might sit back and rest on our laurels. And it's, it's what we do next that is really, really important. And um, one of the guys at, at COP, Nigel Topping, who is the global UN climate champion, I think his title is, and, and he talks about politicians being behind the what he calls the real economy. So the politicians will make a commitment, set a level of ambition, which is not really enough, but the real economy then kicks in. So by that, I mean organizations, businesses, public sector, um, you and me, and we all respond and that then allows politicians or it gives politicians the confidence that they need to then make a further commitment. And, and as an example of that, we've seen that in the UK with electric vehicles, where the government made a commitment to eradicate diesel and petrol engines by 2040 originally. And everyone said that's not enough. And people, consumers, manufacturers of, of, of vehicles, etc., all went back to government and said, well, we can do better than that. And we're moving forward. And then within a couple of years, the government had brought that commitment forward. Initially, they said 2035 and now they're saying 2030. So that's a kind of a, a, a ratcheting effect where we see an ambition, which is not enough being brought forward. And that's what we really need to see out of COP now. We need to see, you know, all of society, all, all those financial institutions, all those businesses, academics, you know, NGOs, etc., piling the pressure on that then will enable politicians to be more ambitious next time around. Yeah, I think another thing that emerged anyway, post, um, post the COP26, you know, Prina, you already mentioned there's going to be a COP27 next year where um, the country will review uh, the progress that's, that's been made and sort of give updates. I believe they they've agreed to do that like sort of every single year, and whereas it's not going to be like such a big gap as it was between um, Paris Agreement and and this COP26. So, 
that's going to show that you know that journey as, you, as you've been mentioning as um, different sectors sort of develop as new technology is um, is developed as well that the governments are going to be able to sort of update their plans maybe some of these commitments and sort of the the way that deals were watered down in this cop maybe we'll, we'll, we will see some progress there but we've spoken quite a lot about what large institutions countries um you know governments can can do in terms of in terms of climate change but on a more of a individual basis what can what can we do what what are the main things that sort of life changes that we should probably start to adopt if we want to sort of make a difference in reducing our own personal carbon footprint for example um i i would say that we definitely need to, we definitely need to reduce our own personal carbon footprint, especially us in the global north, where our footprints are much higher, um, significantly higher than those in the global south, and that goes by reducing consumption. Um, but also, the reality is is that our government, the UK government, is not doing enough, um, and we also need to take part in that collective action. To, as um, Johnny was just saying, like pile on the pressure, make sure that they are sticking to their agreements, but also going more currently, it's not ambitious enough. Their policies are not good enough in a lot of aspects and some they are, but a lot is not. Um, an example of that is they're going ahead with a new oil field um, in the North Sea called Cambo. Um, and so it's stuff like taking part as a collective um, with the people around us, um, because as a collective, we have a much greater voice and much greater power than we do as individuals not saying that we shouldn't do our individual actions um and i think what i always also say is we need to change our mindset we need to continue to learn we need to continue to be open to learn about this topic because it's a like it's just you cannot do it in one there's not one action that we, we can do um so my answer is not a, a single task but it's kind of to um carry on learning carry on understanding this topic further um, and take part in collective action because that also leads to personal action. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. Collective action, I mean, the, the, the protest thing. I, I mean, I think the conservative politicians were really, really rattled, um, not by Extinction Rebellion, but when the school kids came out, because, I mean, if you're a conservative politician and the school kids are coming out and the parents in the playground are telling you, I mean, that is bad. I mean, that is that is like getting mauled, basically. So I think those sorts of things are really, really important. I think the other thing in terms of personal action, I mean, you're, you're an engineering student. So your decision about how you use your engineering skills, what career you pursue, what industry you want to work in, um, that's a really important decision. Because when I mean, we talk about divesting from fossil fuels in terms of financial capital but the human capital that fossil fuels rely on as well so those sorts of decisions are really important and then as Prina said reducing your your own carbon footprint which is hard because we live in a system which is kind of designed around carbon so I mean there's things that we can do to reduce our usage of you know private transport use public transport eat less meat install energy efficiency but many people are working you know living in rental sector you know you, you young people generally don't have the ability or the, the 
the control over the property in order to do those sorts of things. So we do need systematic changes, structural changes to make those things happen to enable individuals to then make the right decisions and, and, and make better choices about their, their carbon footprint. So I think there's a combination of, you know, individual action, but system changes that are needed. Okay. And obviously you, you just mentioned um, me being an engineer and I just wanted to quickly touch on like, you know, any new techno technological um, sort of systems that are being developed, whether it's renewable energy, um, whether it's, um, you know, just something as simple as installing a, a heat pump in the house rather than, um, rather than a boiler. Um, what would you say the key to key emerging technologies are right now? Like what, what stuff are you excited about? What do you think is going to bring about, you know, a lot of change um, with, with regards to the, the climate crisis? Um, well, there's stuff I'm excited about and then there's stuff that will make the change. So, I mean, right now, the stuff that will help us change is, is already established. It's wind, it's solar, it's offshore wind, I suppose, is 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 probably the most exciting area in terms of scalability and growth. It's it's insulation in your roof. It's all those sorts of things that we already know about and can be deployed at scale. And those will make the biggest difference over the next decade, which is the kind of the key, the key decade. Um, but looking ahead and, and the things that make you excited, I mean, the development of hydrogen as an alternative fuel, particularly for industry and those really hard to decarbonize sectors like aviation, maritime, et cetera, where you need a you, you need a higher energy density fuel. And, and so that's going to be a real breakthrough. And if we can get the whole energy system to work where our excess wind, solar electricity generation is then used to convert into hydrogen, that's that could be a real sort of a, uh, a real sort of game changer. Um, the other thing that's getting me excited, actually, is 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 the whole negative emissions. So, you know, planting trees, reforesting, rewilding. And that's where, as Prina said at the beginning, we might see some benefits from this process. We might actually start to do the right thing for a change. And that's not just going to bring carbon savings. It's going to bring a whole bunch of benefits to humanity and benefits to the planet as well. And that's kind of an area that I think has probably been overlooked, but is, is a really exciting area for us. Maybe from an engineering point of view or, or, or a technical point of view, the frontier of innovation isn't so much developing individual individual technologies. It's about putting them all together into a system that works. And so, I mean, we know that we can create renewable electricity. Then the question is, how can we use that to address issues in transport? Or how do we use that to decarbonize heat or to make steel? Those are the things. So from, a, from an energy point of view, it's not so much the individual generation assets. It's actually bringing the system together because, you know, it's integration because we've, ha we've had 200 years to integrate a fossil fuel system. And now we've got 15 years to integrate a renewable system. And that's the kind of difference in terms of speed of development that we need to see. And um, and, and and making that all work and making it work in a way which Prina mentioned at the beginning is equitable because we could see lots of winners and losers happening here. We could see people being left behind, you know, unable to access the smart technologies, unable to access, uh, you know, energy itself. And we know that that's absolutely vital, particularly in developing countries. 
So it's not, you know, the challenge for us isn't about just doing it, it's doing it in a way which is equitable. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I just want to say thank you for your time. And like, it's just been a really good discussion. Like, I've learned a lot even just in this past half an hour. But before we close off the episodes, do you have any closing r- remarks, maybe some words of encouragement for anyone that's listening? Prina, you go first. <laughs> um, I would say that um, we need everyone in this fight and everyone's skills in this fight. Um, so whatever your skills are, whatever you enjoy doing, bring them and yeah, enjoy it while you're here as well. Yeah, that, 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 that's a good point. I mean, for young people, especially, it, it's possible that this becomes almost overwhelming and, and you know, and, and I, I guess can be very, I mean, make people quite anxious. And, and I would encourage young people to look at the positives here and the opportunities that they have. And, and particularly if, you, if you're thinking about, you know, choosing A-level subjects or going to university, et cetera, there is a wealth of opportunities in the new kind of green economy. And, and if you're not interested in being in the green economy, then there's a wealth of opportunities in terms of supporting society. And if you can't do any of that, then you can glue yourself to the door of BP. And that's a really useful thing to do. So, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> And I just want to do a shout out to artists. I was just going to do a shout out to artists in that because actually we often forget about the kind of creative sectors and the art sector, um, and actually they're vital as well. Yeah, we need exactly like it's a technical challenge, but then I'd say they've done a great job in terms of like raising awareness in the first place. I think a lot of people maybe like ten years ago, they might have known about the climate the climate crisis, but maybe there wasn't that um, you know emotional attachment to it but now people seem to be a bit more passionate a bit more motivated and like you said it's everyone getting involved and that's what's really made the difference but absolutely yeah i, I think we'll leave it there for that for now um and thanks for listening yeah we'll thanks yep yeah, thanks for your questions bye now thanks for listening to the gtm podcast you can catch more episodes on youtube spotify apple podcasts and more where we try to build our lives one step at a time.